Salut et fraternité. Greetings, citizens. Hello, I am Manu, your host, and this is the May 68 episode of French Splain, the podcast about everything French, including America. In this episode, I take a look at the events of May 68 in France. What the hell happened in May 68? What was it all about? Is it too early to tell, as Chinese Prime Minister Xu Enlai once quipped? To this day, the debate about the meaning and legacy of May 68 still rages on. And so, as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Joli Mois de Mai, the beautiful month of May as we say in France, I invite you to dive with me into the history of a month unlike any other. It's time for some French playing. Ah, May 68. Students rioting, barricades, general strike, revolution, the slogans. Sous les pavés, la plage, under the cobblestones, the beach, la chienlit, or the big mess, as General de Gaulle called it in a bout of whimsy. I don't think any event in post-war France is, is more central than May 68. Nicolas Sarkozy himself, the president, once declared it's time to liquidate May 68, acknowledging, however unwittingly, the importance and the legacy of May 68 in the French imagination. I was in Paris a couple weeks ago, and the bookstores there are full of books about May 68. The newspapers have daily features. And amazingly, there's even an exhibit at the police prefecture entitled Behind the Shields. It's about the French police in May 68. And, and no, I did not go. That's too much for me. What's fascinating about May 68 is that it acts as a Rorschach test in French society. What you think or imagine of May 68 is intimately tied to your view of the world and to your political commitments. If you're on the left, you believe it was a moment of liberation and progress. And if you're on the right, you argue that it was the beginning of the end when the decline of France's traditional society began. The big question remains, though, was it a revolution or merely a riot? What changed in the wake of May 68? And were these changes already brewing in French society prior to the events? At the very least, both the left and the right agree that May 68 was a césure, a break, a rupture, an inflection point. And I think that's why it still matters today. The stories we tell ourselves about inflection points, like, say, the American Civil War or the French Revolution are a big part of how we understand the present and how we navigate it. In this podcast, I'm not going to try to answer that big question of historical meaning because, uh, well, because it's a trap. But on the other hand, I will try to highlight a few significant aspects of May 68. Its intellectual origins, its sociological origins, and its consequences, its ripple effects throughout the 70s and 80s. Les 
Les gens se lèvent, ils sont brimés, c'est l'heure où je vais me coucher. Il est 5 heures, Paris se lève. Il est 5 heures, je n'ai pas sommeil. But first, let's talk about the events themselves. It is often forgotten, but May 68 starts in Strasbourg in 1966. It's the Strasbourg scandal. Eight students uh, take over the local section of the student union and raid the money to print a pamphlet, 10,000 copies of it distributed to the students at the university. It's called De la misère en milieu étudiant, or On the poverty of student life. It's written by Mustafa Khayati, a member of a shady radical group called Situationist International, but we'll get to that later. The text is a devastating polemic against society as a whole. Besides priests and policemen, students are the most despised group in French society. They must live under the dual thumb of the state and the family, and they are bureaucrats in training perpetually anxious about their status as consumers of impoverished goods and impotent pseudo-leftist thought. Needless to say, this doesn't go over very well with the National Student Union, the UNEF, which, by the way, is left-wing, and it horrifies the Strasbourg bourgeois and powers that be. Even the national press chimes in to the tune of who are these anarchists, basically. At the end of the pamphlet, the author indicates that it is totally free to reproduce, translate, and distribute. It's an early example of no copyright, and as a result, on the poverty of student life is widely read throughout France. It becomes the underground bestseller of the year. Other often ignored preceding event is the massacre in Pointe-à-Pitre, Guadeloupe, in May 67. The strike of construction workers turned into a bloodbath when the police deliberately killed union leader Jacques Nestor. Riots ensued for three days in that colonial outpost of the Republic. The police claims that only eight people died and about a hundred were injured. But historian Benjamin Stora likened the repression in Pointe-à-Pitre to the 1961 massacre of pro-independence Algerian demonstrators. To this day, we, we don't know the exact body count, but what we know is that hundreds of main bodies were fished out of the river as far down as Rouen. This is of particular importance because the French police is hailed for its um, restraint during the events of May 68 in Paris. Nobody got killed as, this, as if this were some kind of amazing achievement. The massacre in impoverished colonial Guadeloupe suggests that the police in Paris did not kill anybody, not so much out of the goodness of their hearts, but because they were under strict orders not to. After all, these were not poor construction workers, but the students, sons and daughters of the upper class. In fact, 1967 is a year of a social conflict. There are strikes at Rodiaceta in Besançon, Uh, next to Lyon, and, and in the mines and in the steel uh, mills in Lorraine. In January of 1968, there's a violent demonstration in Caen with the workers of Savienne. 
they subsequently sequester the boss. Uh, in February of 1968, there are demonstrations of workers and students in Bordeaux. It's thus uh, particularly ironic that Pierre Vianson Ponté, the editor in chief of Le Monde, writes on March 15, 1968, that La France s'ennuie. France is bored. A week after that magisterial self-own, the students at Nanterre universities, just outside of Paris, start to occupy the administration building. The Mouvement du 22 Mars, the March 22 movement, is born. Their immediate demand is the liberation of fellow students arrested a couple days before while demonstrating against the Vietnam War. They had ransacked the Paris headquarters of American Express. But the March 22 movement has bigger and wider demands as well, which largely echo the main points of the Strasbourg pamphlet. They want sexual freedom, the right to visit women's dormitories. They want an end to imperialism and the overthrow of capitalist society. Vast program, as we say. So, who are the March 22 movement people? Mostly Nanterre sociology students. Some of them anarchists or Trotskists or Maoists and so on. Above all, they are anti-authority and anti-institutions. They loathe the French Communist Party as much as the police or the university's dean. Serge Julie, founder of Libération, my favorite newspaper, recalls, We had no doctrine and no plan and nobody wanted leaders. The most charismatic of the March 22 kids is an insolent, red-haired anarchist, Daniel Cohn-Bendit. The thing with Danny, as uh, everybody calls him in France, is that he's, he's only nominally French. He's, he's German. He was born in France, but during the occupation, and so, as he says, um, there was no place to register his birth. Danny is at the forefront of the agitation through April. The tipping point is reached on May 2nd, 1968, when the, the dean of the university has had it and closes up shop. And that's it. Nanterre is closed. The next day, a Friday, students from Nanterre go down to La Sorbonne in the heart of the Latin Quarter to join up a meeting of UNEF, the main student union. During the afternoon, uh, th there are wild rumors that the fascist students from the Assas Law School, so, you know, a few hundred yards away from the Sorbonne, are going to come down and, and do some hippie punching. Uh, so the students down at the Sorbonne decide to occupy the university. And that doesn't fly. The dean of the Sorbonne calls up the cops, the cops come in and intervene and start rounding up the leaders and also random students who are there. Things escalate. And you have to understand, in France, historically and since the Middle Ages, universities are supposed to be sovereign. That means the police is not allowed to enter the university. The university is autonomous. So this is a massive breach of tradition and protocol especially in the heart of heart 
of France's university. You just don't do that. The Latin Quarter, which then was still half student, half gangster, erupts. People dig up cobblestones to throw at the police, and the first barricades are erected. The cops beat up anything that moves, including some of the fascist students from Assas Law School. It's Friday night. It's the first Nuit des Barricades. The following Monday, there are new demonstrations in the Latin Quarter. One of the most notable slogans is Nous sommes tous des Juifs Allemands. We're all German Jews. That magnificent and very famous slogan is in reaction to an editorial by Georges Marchais, the number two of the French Communist Party, who wrote something to the effect that the student movement had nothing to do with the French working class or the interests of the French working class, and that French workers did not need a German anarchist like Kahn Bendit. And so it turns out, it's not just the government and the police who are against the students. It's also the Communist Party. That demonstration on Monday ends up in violence as well. Uh, there are barricades and more than 600 injured on both sides. Also about 400 arrests. But the movement begins to spread. Students across France in smaller cities demonstrate in support of the Nanterre students. So how does the movement spread? After all, this is 1968 in France. There, there are no cell phones and certainly no internet. Well, the radio. What happens is there are reporters from independent radios. There are two of them. Europe One and RTL, and they're based outside of France, and they're non-official. And the reporters broadcast live from the demonstrations, and, and while the police is, you know, throwing tear gas and the students throwing back rocks. It's got to be very startling listening live to riots I mean, you know, we listen to podcasts and we, we love the intimacy of the human voice. So uh, th this is the same experience, but multiplied by 10. And there's something really, really dangerous happening in the streets of the capital. So that is the experience within Paris, but also outside of Paris. And, and this is how news of the movement spread and, and support builds up throughout the country. For, for these students who, after all, are just demanding things that do not seem very threatening and certainly not requiring uh, that kind of response from the government. In a nutshell, the general feeling is, this could be our kids. Maintenant. 
Wow. This is called from RTL Radio Archives from May 6, 1968. I know it's in French, so even if you don't get all the words, I, I think it conveys the general sense. Uh, it's pretty wild. Throughout the week, demonstrations continue in Paris with daily skirmishes between students, high school students who have just joined the movement, and the police. The government treats the whole thing uh, as nothing more than a law and order annoyance. And it's, in fact, a youth revolt. On Friday the 10th, after yet another day of demonstrations, the students decide to fortify the Latin Quarter to turn it into a commune. Several huge barricades are built in the streets surrounding the Montagne Saint-Geneviève. Some are better at this than others. The anarchists raise a two-story high wall in the small streets near Mouftar. They're ready for urban warfare. The police waits until 2 a.m. and the last metro to attack. For a few long hours, it's civil war in the Quartier Latin. The, the unprecedented scale of the violence, or I should say the fact that such violence is directed at French kids instead of Algerian workers, um, shocks the country. And so on the next Monday, the 13th, there are huge demonstrations all over France. Uh, people say that about a million people walked out and, and marched in Paris and another million in the rest of France. And it's also the beginning of the general strike. On May the 14th, the workers of Sud Aviation, next to Nantes, a leading manufacturer of airplane parts, decide to go on strike for an unlimited time. On May 15th, workers at Renault Cléon lock up the managers and, and start to strike. The working class is joining up. On the 16th, more than 50 factories are on strike, including Renault Biancourt, right outside of Paris, one of the largest and, and most important factories in France. At the same time, the Occupation Committee of the Sorbonne, the, the students, uh, call for a general strike and the immediate occupation of all the factories in France. They also call for the establishment of sovereign workers' councils everywhere. Uh, we are now in a pre-revolutionary situation. Two days after the call for occupation, one counts more than two million people on strike in France. On May the 22nd, it's eight millions. And by the 25th of May, um, it's almost nine million people on strike. France is completely paralyzed. It's the largest strike in French history. It's, it's even larger than the 1936 strikes that led to the Popular Front. Uh, this, this is a completely unexpected situation that's all started with a bunch of students who had no doctrine and no plan. Um, and the government is completely befuddled. And it's not just the government, by the way, the, the trade unions as well. 
And so both the government and the Communist Party and the CGT and the trade unions decide to start negotiating something, anything to uh, get people back to work. Uh, and so on the 25th of May, and Jacques Chirac, his uh, labor minister, locked themselves up with uh, the leaders of all the trade unions in France and start negotiating. What comes out of it two days later is called the Grenelle Agreements because uh, the Ministry of Labor is, is Rue de Grenelle. Um, after protracted negotiations, the bosses' union agrees to a 35% raise of the minimum wage as well as the recognition of trade union sections inside every large company. It's hailed as a major progress by the trade unions. But when Georges Segui, the leader of the CGT, goes to Renault factory in Biancourt to present the agreement, he is booed off the stage and the workers vote for the continuation of the occupation and of the general strike. And suddenly, the Communist Party, the trade unions, and the government are left with nothing. They don't know what to do. There's nothing to do. People want to continue the general strike. We're May 27th. And there's a sense of foreboding throughout France because suddenly it seems that neither the government nor the trade unions or the Communist Party have any handle on the situation. There's a vacuum. Um, the next day... There's a massive meeting at, the at a stadium outside of Paris with all the left-wing organizations where uh, François Mitterrand, yeah, that's François Mitterrand, offers himself up to lead the country. Uh, the next day, the General de Gaulle disappears. He, he apparently takes a helicopter to Germany to meet with General Massu in Baden-Baden, where, where the French troops are stationed. Rumors begin to swirl that the army and, and tanks are, are gearing up for something. On May 30th, de Gaulle reappears and announces the dissolution of the National Assembly. At the same time, there's a gigantic demonstration organized by Gaullists on the Champs-Élysées. It's the counter-may, so to speak, of the French bourgeoisie. All the gilded youth and, and the not-so-young as well uh, march with uh, French flags and screaming off the top of their lungs, La France aux Français, France to the French. And, and that slogan, as we know, became the, the motto of the National Front. In the next three weeks, before the June elections called by de Gaulle, France slowly gets back to work. Uh, there are a few... Police operations, the Sorbonne is finally evacuated and workers uh, go back to the grind. The elections at the end of June are a total victory for the Gaullist party. Uh, as if most of the people who demonstrated and who went on strike do not even bother to uh, go to the ballot box. It seemed almost... Uh, 
outmoded or, or irrelevant after what had transpired during the month of May. There's no good way to end uh, such a movement. And so it doesn't end well. There's no closure. Or maybe there is. At least that was my parents' opinion uh, on May 10th, 1981, when François Mitterrand, the socialist candidate to the presidency, got elected. They said that night, I, I still remember that, it's one of my earliest uh, political memory, that this was like May 68. Everybody was embracing in the streets and celebrating and, and hugging strangers and dancing and talking. That feeling of collective enthusiasm and elation, uh, the, the perception that we're all collectively actors of our own history. I felt it on May 10th, 1981. I was there. And apparently it was a pale copy of what it was like in May 68. The dry unfolding of events, unfortunately, that does not really help understand what happened in May 68. It, it remains an enigma, a mystery. And in a way, we're in the same position as the government or, or the Communist Party of the time um, as to what was going on. As a matter of fact, people were already wondering about the meaning of the events while they were happening. So, where do we begin? Maybe the global context. The year 68 is a very turbulent year. Here in the United States, we remember the assassination of Dr. King and of Bobby Kennedy and, and the Democratic Convention in Chicago. Uh, all that on the backdrop of the ongoing slaughter in Vietnam. In Czechoslovakia, it's the Prague Spring, the so-called Prague Spring, where Alexander Dubček, the new leader of the Communist Party, tries to um, liberalize the country, to create uh, socialism with a human face. The experience is cut short by the invasion of the Warsaw Pact in August of 1968. In a way, uh, the invasion of Prague after the invasion of Budapest in 1956 marks the end of illusions that communist countries are stand for freedom. If this is socialism, then thanks, but no thanks. In Mexico, in the summer of 1968, students start uh, a strike as well, inspired by the Paris events. The regime kills between 300 and 400 of them on October 2nd, 1968, just before the opening of the Olympic Games. It's known as the Tlatelolco massacre. In Brazil, the Tropicalia movement coincides with student protests against the military dictatorship. The most prominent Tropicalistas, Caetano Veloso and Gilberto Gio, are arrested at the end of 1968 and, and expelled from the country. And then, of course, there's the Cultural Revolution in China, which still rages on in 1968. 
Chairman Mao has mobilized the Chinese youth against his enemy within the Chinese Communist Party. It's a gigantic and deadly upheaval of Chinese society. And it, it's not resolved until 1976 and the death of Mao. The recurring motif in all these events from Paris and Mexico City to Beijing and Sao Paulo is youth. It seems that 1968 is the year of the young. And the numbers bear out. In France in 1968, more than 33% of the population is under 20, and 48% of the population is between 20 and 59 years old. In not so many words, boomers. Fucking boomers. So there's one explanation. The, the post-war global bulge of babies uh, coming of age at the end of the 60s. In 1945, there are around 100,000 students in French universities. By 1957, we're at 170,000. And by 1968, we're at 500,000. In 20 years, uh, enrollment in universities is multiplied by five. 1968, though, is, is not just a student movement, as we've seen. There's something else going on. It has to do with youth culture. In fact, that god-awful French singer, Johnny Hallyday, is also in his own way behind May 68. And here's why. Ma mère me dit régulièrement Tu ne fais rien, tu perds ton temps Tu ferais mieux de travailler Au lieu de t'en aller traîner Laisse les filles Oui, laisse les filles Tu as bien le temps D'avoir des milliers d'embêtements Crois-moi When Johnny first came on the scene in 1960, he launched a Beatle mania before the Beatles. Everywhere he sang in France, women would go into hysterics, fights would break out, and entire concert venues were demolished. It was mass hormonal trance, rock and roll basically, but with its distinctive French flair of spontaneous popular riot. Older folks found Johnny terminally vulgar and dangerous, and only one radio station, Europe One, would play his EPs. When you listen to this stuff now, you, you kind of wonder what was that all about, given how innocuous and cheesy. But at the time, it was enormous. It was the first and for a time the only one who translated American rock and roll for French youth. In June 1962... Europe One, the radio station, organized a free concert at the Place de la Nation. It was not heavily advertised or anything, and yet, seemingly out of nowhere, 150,000 to 200,000 kids from Paris showed up. It turned into a riot as well, with burned cars and dugout cobblestones and fights with the police, etc. Sociologist Edgar Morin famously called these rebels without a cause the yeah-yeah, because of the yeah, yeah in Johnny's songs. Six years later, these same kids, uh, whether it be anti-Vietnam War activism or the Chinese Cultural Revolution or whatever was in vogue on the fringe left, well, they had found a cause. 
or actually a whole range of causes. Speaking of the fringe left, I want to draw attention to a tiny, tiny little-known event that, in fact, had tremendous importance. Uh, We're in 1946, and, you know, they say that historical change has humble beginnings. In 1946, young Claude Lefort and young Cornelius Castoriadis are active members of the Fourth International, the Trotskyist one. In 1946, the Fourth International believes, after Trotsky, that the Soviet Union is a degenerate workers' state. Lefort and Castoriadis propose a different analysis. To them, the Soviet Union is a bureaucratic state. That is, a state where a class, the bureaucracy, or communist nomenclatura, has seized the means of production. Hence, the Soviet Union is not a socialist entity, but a centralized bureaucratic capitalist one. This may seem like an arcane theological argument, but in fact, it is of tremendous import. Claude Lefort and Cornelius Castoriadis create the Chaulieu mental tendency in the Fourth International named after their nom de guerre, or militant nicknames, or blaze, as we say. The constitution of the Chaudiumontal tendency challenges the orthodox interpretation of the Soviet Revolution and more broadly of state communism. It opens a breach in the rigid debates of the incipient Cold War. Here are two young militants who will later tower over French intellectual life, who formulate a critique of the Soviet Union from a radical left standpoint. Soon after, Casto and Lefort split from the Fourth International and start Socialisme ou Barbarie, Socialism or Barbarism, a.k.a. SOB. Throughout the 50s, these two first-rate philosophers meet and exchange with other Parisian radicals. And most notably, a group of nihilist, merry, and artsy pranksters who call themselves the Internationale Lettriste. The Lettristes spend most of their time in the drinking establishments of the Quartier Latin, then a working-class neighborhood. They spray-paint slogans on walls, ne travaillez jamais, never work. They make the occasional scandalous movie, but above all, they experiment with dérive the art of walking through the cities for days and nights without end under the influence of various drugs and alcohol in search of moments when perceptions expand in search of serendipitous encounters and unknown pleasures. In other words, situations. Situations beyond what is possible are allowed under bourgeois capitalism. The lettriste claim dérive is a revolutionary praxis, that is, a way of refusing in practice all the strictures and demands of an alienated society. Both Lefort and Castot and the lettrists arrive at the same conclusion as the refugees of the Frankfurt School half a world away in Los Angeles. The old world is dead, the Cold War is a sham, the overabundance of goods in the West is a prison of fake choices, while the so-called communist bloc is made up of Orwellian dictatorships. This is all going on in the demi-monde of Paris Underground, somewhere between the Place de la Contrescarpe and the Montagne Saint-Geneviève, 
exactly where the events of 1968 will take place. At the same time, a few blocks away in the more posh Saint-Germain-des-Prés, the older generation of celebrities and intellectual luminaries, the Sartre and Beauvoir and Aragon, etc., are endlessly litigating and debating their allegiance to the terminally Stalinist French Communist Party. They are fighting yesterday's battle. Socialisme ou barbarie and the lettrists have profound and vigorous debates until the late 50s. Out of these, a new international is formed, the International Situationist. Again, a small band of artists and revolutionary intellectuals. Their program creates situations, overcome not only art, but also the entire organization of everyday life, capitalism, and communism. Ambitious. And yet they will almost succeed. There is one standout among them, Guy Debord. Forget Derrida and Foucault and all these French academic celebrities, post-structuralist, post-modernist, post-this and post-that philosophers. Debord is the single most important French intellectual of the 20th century. He edits the International Situationist Periodical, a yearly collection of long and extremely sharp sociological essays. He writes some of them in his superb, refined classical prose. Finally, in December 1967, Debord publishes La Société du Spectacle, or The Society of the Spectacle, his opus magnus. According to the legend, it quickly becomes one of the most stolen books in the Latin Quarter. Society of the Spectacle is now a classic, but at the time, its clever play on words, its mastery of philosophy, its menacing incantations, all that reads like nothing else. It sounds all new, because it is. What Debord calls the spectacle is not show business. It is passivity and alienation. The necessity to consume the excess commodities produced by late-stage capitalism and the ideological apparatus that makes you consume and turns you into a spectator of your own life. Commodities have become so ubiquitous that they've turned into images. Situationist thesis, as we've seen, have made their way into the pamphlet published by the Strasbourg students. Students sympathetic to the Situationist International uh, are among the founders of the March 22nd movement, in particular René Viennet and René Riesel, who are Danny Cohn-Bendit's sidekicks. Many of the slogans, and those famous phrases that were scrawled on the walls of Paris throughout May 68, are drawn from situationist literature. And the call that goes out on May 16th for general strike and the establishment of workers' councils, well, that too is the work of the situationists who are participating in the occupation of the Sorbonne. The anti-Stalinist left is really at the heart of the events of May 68. It's what people nowadays call cultural Marxists or Marxist humanists. And it all began in 1946 amongst um, members of a Trotskyist groupuscule. So, you know, ideas matter, as they say. 
existe et s'il faut commencer par les coups de pied au cul, faudrait pas oublier que ça descend dans la rue les anarchistes. Ils ont un drapeau noir. What did May 68 achieve? Obviously, the more radical elements failed at destroying capitalism. In the intervening 50 years, the world did not change base, as the song says. Quite the contrary, even. And yet, something happened. This is where the preceding discussion of arcane leftist debates was more than just a digression. It lifts the veil over what happened in May 68. The key conclusion of Socialismo Barbarie and the Situationists was that people were already well informed and well acquainted about the profound alienation of their present condition. And thus, they no longer needed a vanguard party, a communist party, to lead them toward a change in society. In fact, all parties replicated as photo-negatives almost, the very hierarchies and bureaucratic structures of the society they purported to overcome, they too needed to be disposed of. That is the main radical victory of 1968, a reaffirmation of civil society against existing sclerotic institutions. Remember what Serge Julie was saying about the March 22 movement. No doctrine, no plan. No leaders. By the end of May, after weeks of demonstrations and strikes without stated objectives, the youth of France had turned cities into vast open-air forums and true movable feasts. Meanwhile, workers were holding dances on shop floors and playing soccer in their factories' yards, putting the theory into practice. Ne travaillez jamais. Never work. And when the trade unions and the Communist Party came back to them with the Grenelle agreements, a 35% raise in the minimum wage, workers booed their self-appointed representatives off, and the general assemblies voted for a continuation of the strike. What was the point of a raise, however massive, when it had been demonstrated that life could indeed be as good as a never-ending party? The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. In the years following May 68, civil society, not just in France, but also in the rest of the world, led the charge towards progress. For instance, French feminists forced right-wing governments to legalize abortion and to make it free just like the pill. The green movement blossomed in Europe. Danny Cohn-Bendit, but also René Rizel, the more radical one, spent their lives trying to put ecological concerns at the center of French politics. In a similar vein, ACT UP forced governments and pharmaceutical labs to reckon with the AIDS plague. Claude Lefort 
wrote at length about the power of self-organizing civil society, especially in the context of communist dictatorships. It is civil society. The 1977 charter, Solidarność, Václav Havel, that brought down the Berlin Wall. I know it's become fashionable and facile to claim that May 68 was the moment when consumerism and individualism and neoliberalism and all the other isms burst onto the scene of history. May 68 is when modern global civil society invented itself. Messy, raucous, sometimes organized, sometimes disorganized, in the streets, but also in the press or in the halls of parliaments, always demanding further rights and justice and always disobedient. May 68 is when obedience died. Far from becoming mindless, individualistic consumers obsessed with money, many May 68 militants devoted their lives to the service of others and to improve the world. Recent and very exhaustive sociology studies prove the events of May 68 in France altered the, the preordained social trajectories of countless people. They became educators, social workers, advocates, local politicians, doctors of the body or doctors of the soul. In the end, if May 68 was a revolution, it was above all a very personal and civic revolution. My parents, their friends, a lot of their contemporaries found meaning in selfless service and in helping others. And they did make the world a better place as a result. So we all know what to do. Soyez réaliste. Demandez l'impossible. Be realistic. Demand the impossible. Thank you all for listening. This was a pleasure. This was the May 68 special episode of French Splain. The podcast where we discuss everything French, including America. I am Manu, your host, and this podcast was not brought to you by any manufacturer of alienated and impoverished consumer goods. Music by Serge Gainsbourg, Jacques Dutron, The Rolling Stones, Gal Costa and Caetano Veloso, Léo Ferré, Gilles Scott Heron, and Berrurier Noir. For any questions, suggestions, criticisms, or just to keep the discussion going, you can uh, tag me on Twitter, at Treconomics. And I promise, promise, there will be a French-splained book. Until next time, salut et fraternité. <laughs>